Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Seeking God's best. Last week was our New Year's message, and we deviated from 1 Corinthians. We went to 1 Peter chapter 2. This week we're back in 1 Corinthians, and this is going to lay the foundation for a message for, se- for the next several messages. This is going to be, I suppose we could say, the first of a six week series on seeking God's best, on that which is lawful but not expedient. And so we'll begin this morning with 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13. And then I'm going to go into a five weeks of topical messages that are going to help frame our minds around this passage of Scripture and exactly what Paul is telling us from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Let's begin by reading the passage together. He says, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I, will be not, uh, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul is going to use this statement to step again into a warning against fornication. We'll see that message in several weeks. But as we step into it this morning, we're going to focus on that phrase that all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. And as we do so, let's remember the context that we find ourselves in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our context, our immediate context goes all the way back to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, Paul warns and he says that it is reported commonly that there's fornication in the church, that there's fornication among you. And he says that this is not just um, not just what, what, what might be branded as um, fornication in, in a regular way, but it's, it's, it's even more heinous than society would come to expect or than society would be engaged in, than unbelieving society around them. Uh, the, so much so that even, it's not even named among the Gentiles that a man should have his father's wife. And he says that this church was puffed up. They did not mourn, but rather than mourning, uh, they let this man engage in open sin while also being a part of the church. Paul tells the church that they need to remove him from their fellowship, that they need to separate this man from the body, lest the body become tainted by his sin. And then Paul went into a discussion about separation. And he began speaking about the necessity of separation. The fact that if there's a little leaven, then it's going to leaven the whole lump. That if there is a little sin in the, in the church, that if open sin is allowed to go unchecked in the church, that the whole lump is going to be brought into sin. When the dirty is with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. And then as he closed 1 Corinthians 5, he talked about the, the necessity of, of limiting our separation. That there are limits. That we should not separate from the world. Because if we separated from the world, if we came out of the world, then we wouldn't be in the world and we couldn't reach the world. And so when the world acts like the world, we shouldn't reject the world for acting like the world. We shouldn't reject unbelievers because they don't act like Christians. However, if a person says they are a Christian, 
and yet they're living in open sin, then we need to separate ourselves from his fellowship that he might be ashamed for the purpose we know of restoration, not simply for complete anathema, completely removing him without any possibility of reconciliation. As Paul stepped into 1 Corinthians 6, he began to talk about judgment among the brethren. And he rebuked them for going to law against unbelievers. And he rebuked them for several reasons. One of which was um, because they were going before believers and it was a terrible testimony. The other is that they were not allowing there to be a spiritual judgment involved because they were going before unbelievers. And then finally he says, and at the end of the day, why don't you just take the wrong? Why not rather just suffer the wrong? Instead of defrauding your brother, why not just be defrauded yourself? That would be the ideal. And that brings us to what we talked about last week, in, or two weeks ago, in um, verses 9 through 11, that there's this group of people defined by the sins that they commit, and he says that these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Be not deceived, he said, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Again, not talking about the fact that if you sin, you lose your salvation, or that saved people never sin, but rather that a person who is living a life consumed with and defined by a desire to sin without any without any conviction in their hearts, the conviction brought on by the Holy Spirit, or without any chastening in their lives, the chastening that comes from a father to those who are in Christ, to believers, if that is not the case in his life, then he will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he said in verse 11, And such were some of you. You were this way, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So you were this way. You were defined by your sin, consumed by your sin, driven by your sin. But when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, everything changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. You died to self. You became alive unto Christ. That, again, that doesn't mean you can't sin. But that means your priorities have changed. That means your thoughts have changed. That means you are convicted in your hearts when you do sin and when you are not walking in fellowship with God. God is actively chastening you as a, as a father would chasten his son back to him until there is restoration of fellowship. And that's where we pick up today. In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, All things are lawful. When Paul says all things are lawful, he is addressing a mindset that had found its way into the church at Corinth. And it has found its way into churches in every century since the church of Corinth. All things are lawful. That word in the Greek literally meaning allowable or right or acceptable. But Paul says all things are not expedient. They aren't aren't all profitable. They aren't all beneficial. And yet this mindset, this all things are lawful mindset exists. And it's rooted in a misapplication of the teaching which really Paul championed. As far as an apostle is concerned, Paul we would often call the apostle of grace or the apostle to the Gentiles. And he was the one that really pushed this concept of grace and the freedom that it gives us from the law. God used him to do this because of the fact that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And there was so much 
reason or room for misunderstanding seeing that so many of those early Christians were Jewish believers. His heavy emphasis, Paul's heavy emphasis throughout his epistles is on the reality that we are no longer under the expectations or the requirements of the Mosaic Law. That in fact God has placed upon believers no such requirement or manual or uh, checklist for daily life. Rather, He has given us of His Holy Spirit whereby we are accountable not to gauge our relationship with God by a set of standardized actions, but rather by the leading of the Holy Spirit and careful, prayerful obedience to the principles of godliness reflected in the Word of God. Now, this is not a lower standard. In fact, this is a higher standard of living. Have you ever thought about how easy it would have been if God would have just given us a checklist? Right? How easy would it have been if God, if, if we simply had a list and said, if I do this, 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 and this, and this, then I'm right with God. But God hasn't done that. God has given us of His Holy Spirit. He has given us His Word. We know things that please Him and what things don't. But He has not set around us a culture whereby it can facilitate the checklist, step-by-step conformity to, to God's law in that manner of speaking. And so we really do have a unique situation in the New Testament and that is what Paul was trying to highlight to these Gentiles as well as to the Jewish believers as he taught on this area of grace as opposed to the law. Now, as we think about this, how is it that we know that Paul's teachings on grace were difficult for the early church to swallow? How is it that we know that Paul's teaching on grace was, was something that was a bit of a hurdle even for believers that had Jewish roots to get over? Well, the Scriptures reveal it to us many times. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 21. In Acts 21, we see Paul's final journey to Jerusalem. In verse 17, it says this, And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe and are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify them, thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they are informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles we believe, which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing save only that they keep themselves from things offered unto idols and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. 
So Paul returns his last time to Jerusalem and he goes before the elders in the church at Jerusalem, James and the other elders. And he's told by them that the Christian Jews in the city are not happy with him. See, these Jews still love the law of God. We talked uh, two Tuesday nights ago about the fact that the law is not opposed to the gospel. That Jesus Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That when he was baptized by John the Baptist, he said it must be done so that all righteousness could be fulfilled. What he was doing was he was identifying himself with John's message. A message of repentance and submission to the law of God. And so Jesus was not opposed to the law. Jesus did not hate the law. Jesus was not against the law. Simply the law was unable to do what it had been sent to do. Not because the law was imperfect, but because man's heart is imperfect. And so these Jews still practiced the law, and it was not wrong for them as Christians to do so. As a matter of fact... Romans tells us that, and we'll see that in just a little bit, that whether you keep the law or don't keep the law, whether you regard a day or don't regard a day, whether you eat meat or don't eat meat, as long as you do it unto the Lord, you're fine. And yet these Jews were very troubled because they heard that Paul was going around telling all the Jews everywhere that they did not have to submit themselves to the law of Moses, that they shouldn't circumcise their children, that they shouldn't do those things that are distinctly Jewish in nature because they're under grace. And the church said, we need to, we need to take care of this dissension, this, this area of disunity. And they encouraged Paul to place himself under a Jewish vow, to place himself under the law, and to show that he walks orderly according to the law. And he did so. He did what he was told to do because he had no problem keeping the law. It's just it's not a requirement for salvation. It's not a requirement for a right relationship with God. And so there was a misunderstanding. The Jewish Christians were concerned about Paul's teaching on grace. And it opens some doors to a misunderstanding whereby people may think that those who keep the law are wrong in doing so. Or a misunderstanding whereby people may think that they can openly sin without consequence because God's grace has covered them. In other words, Jewish Christians were upset because Paul's teaching seemed to give people license to abuse the liberty that they have in Christ, to abuse grace. And we still have this today. You know, as a pastor, this is such a difficult thing to teach grace to your people without giving them that feeling as if they can abuse it. To let you know that you have freedom in Christ. To not attempt to tell you that you don't so that you won't sin, because that's me manipulating. But at the same time, imploring you not to allow that grace that you have to become license. To sin. That's the line we walk in this Christian life. And Paul taught it. Paul taught it and he was unashamed to teach it. And it caused people to be uncomfortable. That's not the only passage. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3.
I want to show you one more example of how we know that Paul's teachings on grace and liberty and things being lawful was not always well received and was not always received with full understanding. Peter is writing in 2 Peter, of course, and look with me beginning in verse 10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God? wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation even as our brother Paul also according to, to the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction. In Second Peter chapter 3, Peter addresses the teachings of Paul. And he says that these teachings are in line with that which Peter is saying, but he says that some of the things that Paul says are hard to understand. And those people that are unlearned, or those people that haven't taken the time to understand the Scriptures, or those people that are double-minded, as James says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, those people who are unstable in their Christian lives, or haven't taken time to search the Scriptures, they wrestle with what Paul has to say. And they abuse what Paul has to say. As they do other scriptures, he says, unto their own destruction. These men who are unstable and unlearned take the word of God that was written through Paul and they twist it and they confuse it and they wrestle with it and they preach things that he's not really saying. And I guarantee you that a part of what Peter is referencing here is Paul's teaching on grace. Because we see numerous times in Paul's own epistles where he has to correct people's thinking on the topic of grace. And he's so careful, Paul is, to ensure that people are understanding what he's saying. And yet those that are unstable and unlearned, they wrestle with these things to their own destruction. And do we not see the same thing in many Christians? Do we not see how many Christians will say, all things are lawful unto me, but completely ignore the phrase that's next, but all things are not expedient. All things are not beneficial. You can turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. Paul's teachings on grace do not exist to give us a pass on sin. Paul's teachings on grace do not exist to place in our minds a mindset of liberty where we feel that license to do what thou wilt, as some people say. Paul's teachings on grace are meant to establish us in the foundation and assurance of our faith and then compel us unto willing obedience, not motivated by fear or necessity of salvation, but rather obedience motivated by love 
and by the great desire for true fellowship with God. We talked about that this morning in our Sunday school hour. The question arose, why did God place the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Why would God place such a temptation before Adam and Eve? Well, Adam and Eve were in what we would call unconfirmed holiness. But God didn't just want servants. God didn't just want little creatures that He created to walk around and do His bidding. God wanted His creation to love Him. And love is not love unless it's a choice. Love is not love that is not chosen love. You cannot compel love. You cannot force love. God has never wanted to force your love. If He wanted to do that, He could. And He would. God wants you to choose Him. And God does not want you to spend your life seeking to earn salvation. God has manifested perfect love through giving you salvation as a free gift. And then it's His desire that you would then manifest your love for Him back through obedience. And if we're going to do that, we we need to recognize that there are some things that are lawful, but not beneficial, but not expedient. Paul clarifies this point in the second half of the verse. He goes on to say in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. That though all things are indeed lawful to the believer, that we're not under a physical law, that we're not under the Mosaic system, that we don't have a checklist to please God. This is not to become some form of license, but rather a greater compulsion toward obedience. That though all things are lawful because of what Jesus Christ has done, we willingly, lovingly deny anything that would seek to have power over me that is not given to me through the power of God's Holy Spirit. I will not allow anything other than the Spirit to have, as this word in the Greek says, authority or mastery over me. God is my master. God is my authority. The day I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, I humbled myself before God. He became my God. And now it is my privilege to make sure that nothing else in my life takes His place. Nothing else is placed above God in priority. Nothing else is placed above God in love. And when we do, it's called idolatry. And it is a sin. I'd like us to explore this principle a little bit deeper on a surface level, on a principled level today. And then as I said, over the next five weeks we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. When you think of the liberty that we have in Christ and the necessity of living within that liberty, the book of Galatians should always be the book that comes to mind. The book of Galatians is a book that speaks about the dangers of legalism and submitting ourselves to a false law. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. I know I've got you turning a lot today. Um, I don't apologize, but I know. I'm aware of it, just just, uh, in case you you didn't think I was. (laughs) I know I have you turning a lot, but uh, that's okay. Let you see this stuff for yourself this morning. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins an analogy, an illustration. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, 
though he be Lord of all. As Paul seeks to express the reality of the world's freedom, of the, the Christian world's freedom, particularly from the letter of the law, he uses the illustration of a child born into a family of privilege. In that child's younger years, he finds himself under governors and under tutors. He is subjected to discipline, to chores, to expectations, in much the same way a child would be treated, a child even as an heir, or the servant child growing up in the master's home. But when that child is grown, and he comes into his inheritance, he's no longer just like a servant's child. He's an exclusive heir to the riches of his father. He is no longer under the masters and the tutors and the, and, and the servitude. He is now a co-heir to the riches of his father. Paul says in verses 4-7 through seven that such is a similar reality with our salvation. That prior to belief, we were under the law. And our, the law was our schoolmaster or our tutor to bring us to Christ. It is the law that shows us that we have offended Christ. It is our law, the law that, that shows us that we have offended God's holy nature. I don't know if you've ever been witnessing to somebody before and they have felt like they were a pretty good person and you've taken them perhaps to the Ten Commandments to show them that they're actually not a very good person. I was talking to a man with D not, not uh, too long ago, a couple months I guess now. We were out door knocking and we were talking to a man named Dean. And I asked him how good of a person he was and he said, I'm doing pretty good. He said, I'm a good person. I said, how do you know you're a good person? He said, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really doing well with the Ten Commandments. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm at least an eight out of ten on those. And so we started walking through the Ten Commandments. And as we walked through the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We talked about thou shalt not kill in the standard in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 about hating your brother. And we talked about adultery and lusting after a woman as being the same as adultery and by God's standard. And he said, whoa, I guess I'm not doing so good after all. The law is a powerful tool to show people that they are not quite what they think they are. To show people of their unrighteousness. To show people of their, their need and that's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. He says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to show us our need. It tutored us in the fact that we actually need Christ. But once we accept Christ as our Savior, we're freed from the condemnation of the law. There is no more condemnation of the law. We don't look at the Ten Commandments and say, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Because we have been liberated from our sin and from the condemnation found from our sin. We've been made alive like the co-heirs, like that child who is now the heir to the inheritance of Christ. And so verse 7 tells us, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now to this end, Paul states definitively that the submission of oneself to an external set of rules as the basis for our relationship with God now, in the case of the Galatians, they were resubmitting themselves to the Mosaic Law. But he says, if we submit ourselves to an external set of rules as the basis for us to gauge whether we're right with God or not, 
is a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a confusion to the message of that gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul would tell them in chapter 3, verse 1 of Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. He says you have been bewitched into believing another gospel because you believe that you have to submit yourself to the law in order to have a right relationship with God. Because you believe that you have to add some, some sort of work to your salvation or to your sanctification. As we continue into chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 1 makes a definitive declaration of liberty which we as believers have in Christ. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, Paul says, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. When I was in college, I preached a message on this once. And I preached that Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, was speaking about the bondage of sin. I'm appalled by that because that's not what it's talking about. And I told those people that that yoke of bondage that they should not be enslaved to is the bondage of sin. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that you need to stand fast in your liberty and be not entangled again with the yoke of the bondage of the law. Don't be entangled again with thinking that checklist Christianity is going to work. That if you do a certain set of things, then God's going to be happy with you. Don't be entangled again, he says, by the yoke of that bondage. Don't allow the simplicity of the gospel of grace to be destroyed by placing extra biblical requirements upon salvation and Christian living. We're freed from that. Let's not place ourselves under it again. Paul states in verses 2 and 3 that it doesn't really matter whether or not a person has conformed themselves to the law when it comes down to it. When it comes down to whether or not they have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith. And he warns in verse 4 that those who believe that adherence to the law can justify them have made the sacrifice of Christ of no effect, worthless to them. What a statement. That if you believe that by submitting yourself to some external law, some external set of requirements, you can be right with God and have a relationship with God and be saved from your sin, then you have just made the entire sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, worthless, useless, effectless in your life. And notice what Paul says in verses 7 through 9. He says, Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven. Leaveneth the whole lump. Several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 5, we saw these same words, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And I mentioned at the time the similarities and the differences between 1 Corinthians 5, verses five and, uh, verse 6, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and Galatians 5, verses 5 and 6. And then all the way down through 9. There are similarities, but there are great differences as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul is warning against those in the church who would seek to exercise their liberty at the expense of godly living. In other words, the person that's gone so far into their liberty that they believe that they can sin without consequence. 
Paul says, if you, have, if you are taking advantage of your liberty, then you are leaven in the lump. And then he warns in Galatians against those on the other side of the spectrum that would go so far into legalism that they believe that if you're not doing certain things, if you're not keeping a certain set of standards, then you're, you're not right with God. Paul calls it leaven in the lump. Legalism is leaven in the lump. Taking advantage of your liberty so that you're actually sinning and calling it your, your liberty in Christ is leaven in the lump. Both are just as ugly in the eyes of God. It's just as ugly if you tell somebody that they're not a Christian because they don't wear a suit on Sunday as it is if you say, nope, absolutely no problem, no standard, no, no righteousness, no holiness of God, don't worry about it, you're under grace, you don't have to worry about sin anymore, there's no such thing as it anyway, you're under grace. Both are ugly in the sight of God. Both are leaven in the lump of Christianity. And even in his stern warning in Galatians 5 against legalism, notice what Paul says in Galatians 5.13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Here he is speaking against legalism. And he's saying, no, don't do it. You're not under a law. You don't have those conditions. You don't have those standards. You don't have to submit yourself into this for a right relationship with God. Don't trust it. Don't think it. But, brethren, you've been called unto liberty. So come over here into this camp. However, don't use your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Don't use it to pursue your flesh. Use it right here in the middle to serve one another in love. That is why we have liberty. You have been given liberty in Christ not so you can live out your life however you want. You have been given liberty in Christ so that you can meet people where they are and love them to Christ. So that you can serve one another in love. Paul is not making these assertions in an attempt to free Christians from the guilt associated with sin nor is he seeking to free Christians from the expectations of piety and godly living. Rather, Paul is teaching believers how it is they can successfully structure their lives so that they are living in freedom, but also living safely within the bounds of the freedom that God has given to us. And so Paul says in Galatians chapter, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13 as we return, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. In verse 13, Paul briefly applies the very principle we've been studying as he gives an example of a proper way to apply the freedom that we have in Christ and an improper way to apply the freedom that we have in Christ. Paul tells us that food is made for the stomach and the stomach is made for food. Now, as we look into the Old Testament law, we understand that there were dietary laws that God put in place. If the Jewish believer wanted to be right with God under the Mosaic Covenant, there were certain things that they could not eat. There were certain animals that were unclean. Now, as we think about it, the one that most commonly comes to mind is pig, pork. Uh, they, they are, under the Mosaic Law, not allowed to eat pork. 
but there was a, a, a large number of conditions upon which things could or could not be eaten. Things were clean or an unclean animal. And those conditions had to be met. And there were several animals that were not allowed to be eaten based upon those conditions. Now, along with not being able to eat certain animals, they could not eat the blood of any animal and they could not eat meat offered unto idols. But these laws that God put in place, they were not there because our stomachs can't handle it. Have you ever heard someone say that before? That's kind of steeped in that legalism, that idea that we shouldn't eat certain meats, that God didn't want them to eat pork because it's not supposed to be good for the stomach, or whatever the case may be. Maybe you haven't heard those arguments. Maybe you have. But the fact of the matter is, Paul's teaching here, well, meat is for the belly and the belly is for meat. Amen? Right? Meat is okay to eat because our bellies are made to digest meat. It's, it's, it's okay for us to do. However, he says, God shall destroy both it and them. It's temporal. It is a temporal thing. Eating meat is a this life thing. It's not going to carry over into the life to come. Under Christ, we are free from the law. Our body was made to eat meat. Our stomachs are capable of digesting meat. So we are completely free to eat meat. Bacon for everyone, right? Delicious. Meat's for the belly and the belly's for meat. Furthermore, Paul says, both meat and the stomach that digests meat will be destroyed. They're carnal, they're earthly, they're part of the world, they're in a part of this process that's passing away. What we eat has absolutely no spiritual bearing. Unless we eat too much of it, then we're getting into gluttony, and that is a problem. But what we eat in and of itself has no spiritual bearing and therefore does not need spiritual censorship. But everything changes when there is a spiritual element involved in our actions. And that's what Paul continues to say in verse 13. He says, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. We'll continue talking about fornication in the weeks to come. But he says, The body is not for fornication. Whereas the stomach was created for meat, and meat was created for the stomach, there are certain physical actions that are inextricably linked to spiritual expectations. To that end, the body is not made for fornication. Fornication is unnatural to the body. It's natural to our flesh, but it's unnatural to God's design for us. Meat is a part of what God has designed us to do. It's okay. Fornication is not a part of what God has designed us to do. It is an offense to the spiritual design that God has created for man. And so whereby our liberty gives us the freedom to do those things that our body is designed for, there's no law that's saying we can't eat meat. By that same token, we have not been given the liberty to commit fornication in our bodies, even though our bodies are capable of it, our bodies weren't made for it. God has not designed us to be that way spiritually. We ought not take our liberty and turn it into license. Instead, the body is made to be consecrated to the Lord. And the Lord has committed Himself to our bodies through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God has committed Himself to us the moment you were saved through His Holy Spirit. Now, we'll talk about these elements later. Today we focus on this principle of Christian liberty. 
What this means is that there are certain physical actions which we can perform which violate the natural consecration of our bodies to God and thus puts us in a state where we are spiritually unnatural. Where we are in a state that God has not designed us to be in. And we have no liberty to go that direction. Look what it says in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. There is a natural expectation that those who have accepted Christ and therefore have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them would conduct themselves in such a way that the Spirit of God is not grieved. That because you and the Spirit of God are linked, your liberty does not give you the freedom to do those things to which the Holy Spirit of God would be grieved. So, the Holy Spirit of God is not grieved when you eat a strip of bacon. But the Holy Spirit of God is grieved when you commit fornication. We have no liberty to do that which God has told us we may not do. We have liberty to live according to the ability that God has given to us. Romans 6 verse 14 says this, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are are not under the law, but under grace. Our bodies are made new creations in the Lord at salvation. Because of this, we are no longer ours, we are God's. Our bodies are consecrated unto the Lord, and the Lord returns this sacrifice by giving us the blessing of His Holy Spirit. And so our moral choices, those choices that have spiritual bearing upon our lives, what we do, where we go, what we say, what we watch, what we listen to, what we wear, these are all choices that might be touched by morality. And what that means is we have freedom to a degree, but there is a place where we can step out of that freedom and turn our freedom into license. Any area of life that has a moral component, which is most, by the way, has a liberty component and a license component. And it's our privilege to live in liberty. It is not our privilege to live in license. And that is the responsibility of the believer. The only things that ought to be done with our bodies and the only things that ought to enter into our bodies are things which are consistent with the spiritual man which was born in us at salvation. So we've learned a lot. Let's apply these truths in a general way to our our lives this morning. Over the next five weeks, we're going to apply it to various areas of life. And I'm going to do so not to try to send you down a legalistic path but to help you and to help your mindset to get a framework for how we can live in liberty without stepping into license. Where liberty ends and license begins. So that we can live in liberty without living in license. So let's apply these truths. And I'm going to apply it in three ways. And these three applications are going to span every week of our little mini-series for the next five weeks. There are things no born-again believer should do. Second, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Third, 
Just because you shouldn't do something doesn't mean no one should do it. Those are going to be our three points. There are things that no believer, no born-again believer should have a part of. There are things that, though you could have a part of it if you wanted to, you probably shouldn't. It's lawful but not expedient. And then there are things that, even though you shouldn't, that doesn't mean that no one else should. And those are going to be our three points. Let's look at them briefly this morning. There are things no born-again believer should do. Paul tells us in verse 13 that the body is not made for fornication. Fornication is foreign to the body. It's unnatural to the body. There are certain things in the world that can go into the body, but they aren't made for the body. And so as a foreign object to the body, they don't do anything to help the body. When I was in high school, I was active in my local police department. I went through a police training um, academy. It was actually an exact clone of a typical police academy, except we didn't shoot firearms because um, they didn't want the liability. So we did everything but shoot firearms, and one of the things that we had the privilege of learning was how to be a first responder to clandestine drug labs. Basically, what that meant is that we were able to recognize and learn about methamphetamine labs and how to identify meth labs and how to be careful around meth labs. And you know what's interesting? Methamphetamine is one of those drugs that I just plain don't understand. It's a concoction of numerous household chemicals that are cooked together over a stove. You pour some gasoline in, you pour a bunch of Sudafed in, you pour a bunch of other chemicals in, some Drano, and you cook it over a stove, and then you inject it with a syringe into your body, and it gives you this high. Methamphetamine is a very hard drug. It is extremely fast as far as its addictive qualities if you live through it the first time you inject yourself with it. It's a terrible drug. It's very hard on your body. If you've ever seen anyone, uh, any pictures of people before and after a meth addiction, it's absolutely devastating to the body. And the reason why it's devastating to the body is because, simply put, those chemicals are not meant to go into your body. Gasoline and Drano and all those things, they're not meant to go into your body. And when they go into your body, they destroy your body. The body was not made for it. And while I can, I have the physical ability to take a syringe and inject that garbage into my body, there will be nothing profitable from it and in fact it will be excessively detrimental to me. In a similar way, there are things in life that the believer has no business being a part of. It's like meth. It's like a drug. No benefit, nothing but detriment. I can do it, but I should not do it. I have no business doing it. They are detrimental. They grieve the Holy Spirit. They're wicked to the core. There's nothing profitable in it. There's nothing virtuous about it and we should not be a part of it. We have no business engaging in it. There's some lists of these things. Proverbs 6, verse 16 gives us one of these lists. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and, soeth, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Those things are things that the believer has no business doing ever. How about Galatians 5, 19-21? I'll just pop it up there. I won't read it. These are the works of the flesh as manifest in Galatians 5, 19-21. These are things that come directly from the flesh. I'm sorry, it's a little small. The believer has absolutely no business doing any of these things. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3-5. through five, Another list of things that the believer has no business doing. Filthiness, foolish talking, jesting, things which are not convenient. 
And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. We preached that the last time we were in 1 Corinthians. Fornication, idolatry, adultery, uh, homosexuality, theft, covetousness, drunkenness, reviling, extortion. These are things that no believer should have any part in. It's like that drug that we would inject into our bodies. Sure, we can be a reviler, an extortioner, a fornicator, a coveter, but we have no business doing it and there's nothing virtuous about it. Rather, Philippians 4 verse 8 tells us, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, we think on these things. Galatians 5.22 tells us that we should exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These are those things that ought to manifest themselves in our lives. We are called by God to put off sin and to put on virtue. To completely reject those things that are not intended to enter into our body as a believer and to pursue those things which are good as new creations in Christ. We hasten on. The second point, so there are things that no born-again believer should be a part of. But second, there are things that though you can do them, that doesn't mean that you should do them. There are things in life that, while not inherently sinful, are of the world, as a part of the world system, um, not inherently sinful though, and thus lawful. But just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's always expedient. Doesn't mean it's always beneficial. Things I can do, but that doesn't mean I should do them. Let's go back to our body. So nobody has any business injecting methamphetamine into their body. But you know, there are other things in this life. There are things that we can consume that our bodies can handle, that our bodies are made for, and yet just because our bodies can handle them or our bodies are made for them, that doesn't mean that they are beneficial to us. My mother-in-law is here and uh, my wife and my mother-in-law got on a baking spree while they were here and they made cookies. Now, cookies are made for the body and the body for cookies. I will boldly and gladly tell you that cookies are made for the body and the body for cookies. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's just natural. But, just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's beneficial. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's expedient. All those cookies are gone. That's because I eat cookies five at a time at minimum. And so all those cookies are now gone. It was good. But, you know, it wasn't beneficial. There's very little in those... I mean, there's some oatmeal in them, so I guess I got a little bit of something good and such. But, while it was lawful for me to do... It maybe wasn't expedient. Now, however, I'm a, a, a 30 waist. I'm not... I could probably stand to gain a little bit of weight. So I'm not at that point where I shouldn't eat cookies. I can eat cookies. And while it wasn't necessarily beneficial to my body, my body's still functioning just fine. I'm not hurt from it. It's not damaging me necessarily. Now, if I were to continue to do it, then it might become damaging. And so there are things that while they are not wrong, they are not necessarily beneficial. And because they're not beneficial, if I use them out of balance, they will become wrong. If I make cookies my diet, cookies and milk is all I'm going to drink from now on, then what is not wrong 
is going to become wrong. My body is going to get very large. I will be malnourished because I won't have any vitamins. I'll only be getting cookies. And there's going to become problems. Problems are going to come through my taking advantage of that which I have the freedom to do. And that brings us to the third category of consumption. Foods which are made for the body, fully digested... Oh, well, no, wait, excuse me. Got lost in my notes here a little bit. I'm just going to move right on to the third point. I didn't think I had that much in my second point. Uh, I'm going to move right on to the third point. You get the point. There are things which are lawful, but not expedient. And you know, in our Christian lives as well, there are things that are lawful, but not expedient. Things that we can do. Things that we have the freedom to do in culture. Things that, it's not sin for us to do them. It's not sin for us to wear that. It's not sin for us to go there. It's not sin for us to do that thing. But it's not expedient either. And so just like junk food, we should probably do it in moderation. If we allow ourselves to be controlled by it, if we allow it to take over our lives, if we allow it to consume us, then it will become out of balance and it will hurt us. And it will become wrong. I won't spend any more time there. Third and finally, just because you shouldn't do something doesn't mean no one should do it. You know, perhaps you have a weight problem or a cholesterol problem or diabetic or heart palpitations or whatever it is, or you simply can't control yourself around junk food. There are certain, there are certain things that, you know, I'll tell my wife you can do it from time to time, but there, there are foods that are not allowed to be around this house because I'm just going to devour them. And I know my own weaknesses, and so there are certain things that aren't allowed in our house except when given express permission because I'm... I can't handle it. I'm just going to go crazy and eat it all. So someone might be able to have a big platter of cookies in their house and eat one a day and be fine. And they can have cookies all the time sitting around. Whereas in the Wickler home, you can't do that. Just because, however... I shouldn't have cookies lying around doesn't mean you can't have cookies lying around. And if I judge you and say, how dare you have cookies lying around because cookies will make you fat, then I am now imposing what I have a problem with on you. And I have just sought to limit your liberty and your freedom because of my failing and my struggles. In much the same way, pies and cakes don't allure me. My wife made a bunch of cakes for, those, uh, for, for our Christmas party and many of you were there for the Christmas get-together and she made a bunch of little cakes for that and we had some left over and I didn't eat one piece. It was in the house for weeks. I didn't eat one piece. She frosted it with delicious frosting. I didn't eat any of it. I just didn't really have any desire to eat any cake. She's made a couple of pies. I'm really not planning on having any of it. It's all hers. But those cookies were gone for, you know, like that. And so you might not be able to handle cakes and pies. And so you're going to keep those out of your house so you don't go out of balance, so that you don't um, hurt your body, so that you don't get too out of shape or overweight or, or if, you, if you have um, particular dietary needs because of a health condition, you're going to keep the things out of the house that, that are a problem to you. But for you to look at me and say, how dare you have cake in your house because I can't eat cake, is for you to impose your limitations on me. 
And that is what Paul is saying here. See, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. We have the liberty to eat. Now, nobody has the liberty to inject themselves with methamphetamine because that is absolutely not beneficial. But we have the liberty to eat junk food to the degree that we keep it in moderation and do right and keep ourselves healthy. For me to impose my junk food standards on you or for you to impose your junk food standards on me is to to impose a false standard upon someone else. But just because I can eat junk food doesn't mean I should. And just because you can do certain things in your Christian life, you can go there, you can wear that, you can listen to that, you can do those things, doesn't mean it's good for you. It's lawful, but it's not expedient. It's like the junk food aisle. You take it carefully. You don't go down the junk food aisle right before lunch when you're hungry. You know your limits. You know how to keep yourself within those limits. And you help keep those that you love within their limits as well. That's the Christian life. We know the limits that God has given to us. We see what sin is and we we pinpoint sin and we cut sin off. No drugs, right? We cut that off. We identify our areas of liberty. We identify our strengths. We identify our weaknesses. We identify where we struggle. We identify where we don't. We don't put ourselves into situations where we struggle. We allow ourselves to enjoy those things in life where we don't. But then we don't impose those things on others. Unless we start seeing them drift toward sin. At which point we warn them. And we help guide them. And we help them put up fences in their lives to keep their liberties in check. I hope that that illustration was helpful. It's helpful to me. And that's what we're going to be talking about. I wish we had time to turn to Romans today, but we don't. All things are lawful, he said, but all things are not expedient. Over the next many, many weeks, we're going to talk about five areas of life. Next week, we're going to talk about amusements. The week after that, appearance. Then music. Then hobbies. Then substances. I believe those are the five. And I'm not going to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. I'm not going to give you right bands, wrong bands. Right books, wrong books. Right movies, wrong movies. I'm going to give you principles. I'm going to inform you about some things in culture. And we're going to take those three principles and we're going to seek to apply them to areas of our lives not so that I can guide you into legalistic standards but so that you might by God's grace be able to guide yourself into proper godly standards by identifying what is sin identifying what is legalism identifying what is liberty and living in your liberty and helping everyone else live in theirs as well And I trust that you'll make a point of being here for those um, five lessons as best you can. Uh, I'm excited about it. They have been hard for me to write. Very difficult for me to write. So I trust that that with the Holy Spirit's help, they will be uh, of great benefit to you. Let's close in a word of prayer.